This morning we're looking at James chapter 1, uh, verses 9 through 12. But I'm going to begin reading uh, from verse 1, read, read through uh, verse 12. So James chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Listen now to the reading of God's holy word. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower fails or falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on this, His holy word. O gracious God in heaven, we do praise you and thank you for your goodness and your truth that you reveal to us in your word. We thank you that your word is the only infallible rule for faith and life to lead us and guide us. And that you are good and desirous that we would understand your holy word. To be able to apply it to our hearts and to our lives. And so we pray for your spirit to do just that this morning. And we pray, O Father, that as your word goes forth in the power of the spirit, we do pray that it would find within each of our hearts that rich, fertile soil that will bring about a great and abundant fruit for your glory. We ask now for your blessing upon your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. We hear a lot these days about economic inequality and the growing gulf between the rich and the poor or those who have and those who don't or in the case of many here in the United States, those who have an excess and those who simply have less. Now this isn't a new problem. It's been around uh, since sin entered the world really. And many solutions over time have been offered, but of course these have often led to the problem only getting worse rather than better. And so the problem still persists, and it very likely will continue to persist until the end of the age. Now this doesn't mean that we don't try to alleviate poverty, or we don't try to curb abuses where we can. It's simply a statement of the reality of the fallen world in which we live. 
In fact, Jesus makes this clear to his disciples in Mark 14. He says, For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. The poor will always be with us. Well, the implication then is that so will the rich. Which, of course, then means there will always be economic inequality, at least to some degree. And if that's the case, then what do we do? Especially when these issues begin to spill over into the church. When economic and financial trials come to those in our own midst, or when economic inequality threatens the peace and the unity of the body of Christ. Well, our passage this morning in James may have some insights for us, but not, not that we find here the missing key that's going to once and for all magically solve the problem. But we do find here wisdom. Wisdom as to how we can both view the reality of this problem and even live in the midst of it and live in the midst of this imperfect world to the glory of God. Now, those to whom James is writing are being confronted with these kinds of economic issues. And it seems that most of them appear to be afflicted with, with poverty. But it's also apparent that there are some who are wealthy in the congregation as well. And James is going to actually address some significant problems of the wealthy oppressing the poor uh, later in his letter. But here, as he's just introducing this topic of, of economic trials, he seeks to encourage and warn those who are facing these trials, whether those trials are due to poverty, or even whether those trials are due to wealth. Now, just before this, remember James has focused on the need to seek and ask for, for godly wisdom so that we might better understand God's plan and His purpose for, for our lives, and especially that we would have discernment and understanding about the purpose of the various trials that come into our lives. And this is important because, as we'll see, possessing godly wisdom is the only way that we'll be able to then understand and implement what James challenges us here. What he says in verses 9 and 10. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. And so first we want to consider this lowly brother and and the particular uh, trial being faced. When James speaks of of this lowly brother, he isn't speaking about someone's character of humility, but rather he's actually talking about the state or, or the condition in which they live. By this, James is referring to his fellow believers who are poor. Now we know, of course, poverty was common in, in the first century, whether you were in a Greek or Roman city, it didn't matter, or even if you were approaching the gate of the, the temple in Jerusalem. Poverty was everywhere. And as we noted, many of these Jewish Christians that James was writing to seem to have been greatly afflicted with, with poverty. And one reason for this poverty, is linked to, very likely, to persecution. 
Remember we discussed at the beginning when we talked about uh, James writing this letter uh, to those scattered about, to the 12 tribes, that he's writing to these uh, believers who were scattered about in remote places and that the reason that they were scattered there was because of the outbreak of persecution against the church and uh, in the early days as we, as we see in the book of Acts as persecution led by uh, Saul uh, of Tarsus uh, that drove the Christians out from Jerusalem and then increasingly went uh, to uh, places further from there as that persecution spread. Well, as you think about those Christians who were there originally in Jerusalem or in Judea, and they had to leave their families, their homes, they had to leave their livelihoods back in Jerusalem, and now they've come to these communities with hardly anything except what they could quickly uh, gather and, and carry. Well, like many displaced peoples today, like, or refugees, they would have very little with them. In fact, it would be difficult to, uh, for some to even uh, get started in making a living for themselves. But then added to this is the fact that they seem to be enduring persecution and oppression also locally. Now this persecution may not have necessarily been because of their faith in Christ, though certainly that was going to come. But just for the fact that they were outsiders... Right, that they'd been uh, vulnerable, they'd be vulnerable to be taken advantage of, even by those who were intending to at least give the appearance of of trying to help them. And we see that again all the time: people, vulnerable people, and and those trying to help them, but with motives to take advantage of them. Well, as James will later address. Those who were wealthy were some of the culprits who were bringing about this oppression upon the poor. And it certainly wasn't easy for these then, or for these lowly brothers. For many, if it weren't for the ministry and the fellowship of the church, they likely wouldn't have survived at all. But they had this small community of believers who had, would band together. And so we see here that poverty is, is a serious trial. Now we know that even here in our own nation, the poorest of the poor are actually pretty well off when compared to uh, some of the poor in, in uh, other parts of the world. And so poverty and its eff uh, effects in, in that sense are relative. But we have to be mindful, and we saw maybe some of this yesterday, that just because the overall standard of living is better doesn't mean that the suffering of those going through economic hardships is any less valid. And yesterday we heard uh, people share about just some of the, the different trials that they'd been through and, and job loss and that brought up, brings about uh, some of these kinds of economic hardships. And so we see this kind of suffering all around us. And of course, in today's world, when you add the, the weak economy of the past several years and rising inflation and the increase of costs of everything from, from eggs to gasoline, we see how such trials begin to affect us closer to home as individuals and as families and, and even as a congregation of God's people. Now, persecution hasn't even begun yet, right? At least not yet. But it's hard. 
It's hard for people. And again, there are many who are struggling, and there may be those here who are struggling. These are difficult times. And there are many challenges that are to be faced. It's easy to become so overwhelmed by it all that we just want to just throw in the towel and give up. And, And sadly, many people do. But James, here in this letter, is offering encouragement to those that he's writing to and ultimately through the Spirit and because through the Word of God, he's offering that encouragement to us. Challenging those enduring economic distress to just kind of step back for a moment and kind of take a look at the big picture. So we see in verse 9, that the lowly brother the one who's economically distressed, is to glory in his exaltation. Now, at first glance, this may seem somewhat contradictory, right? How can the brother of humble circumstance glory in his exaltation? What exaltation or high position does he have to glory in? Well, certainly none. By the world's standards... But when we apply godly wisdom to, to the situation, hopefully it becomes clear. James is encouraging them to consider that despite their trying circumstances, they have reason to rejoice and to give thanks. What is that reason? Now, one is that it could always be worse, Right? We may face trials that impact our income and our livelihood. But we may still have our health. We may have our families. We have a roof over our head. We have a food on the table and in the, in the freezer. A caring church family. We have our freedom. At least for now. So yes, it could be worse. And we wouldn't really have to look too far and too hard and too long to find someone in a situation that's in much worse condition than we are. And so, yes, we should be thankful and and rejoice for these significant things that we do often take for granted because it could always be worse. But we see here, James has something more in mind than, than just saying, hey, it could be worse. James is here reminding us of the great and glorious high position that a brother in Christ has and that we have if our hope and our trust is in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. That high position is that we're brothers and sisters with Christ, which means that we're sons and daughters of God most high in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's our glorious position. That's what we can exalt in. And the Apostle Paul reminds us of the same thing when he says in Romans 8, uh, verse 15, he says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. 
And so as sons and daughters of the one true living God, we are greatly honored and privileged. We're heirs together with Jesus Christ to the eternal glory of God the Father. And the trials that we endure, and the trials that we suffer with in this life, even economic hardships, will seem like nothing when they are compared to the eternal glory that we're going to inherit when Christ returns. And again, this is where wisdom comes in, right? We, we need wisdom to be able to discern the eternal value of our position in Jesus Christ. A position of honor and glory that can never be taken away from us. We need wisdom. To understand that though we may lose our job, we may lose our bank accounts, we may lose our material possessions, our health, or even our lives. But we can never lose our salvation and the glory that awaits us in eternity if our faith is in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. We can't ever lose it. We're held fast in His hand and in the hands of the Heavenly Father. No one and nothing can pluck us out. And no, we can't jump out either. We know thieves can come and steal. They can steal our money. They can steal our possessions. And moth and rust and fire and disaster can destroy whatever treasures we own. But our treasure in heaven is indestructible and everlasting. And will never, ever fade away. We also need wisdom to press on in our trials with the confident hope and assurance that our sovereign God and Lord, right, the one who created heaven and earth by the word of His power, the one who, who clothes the lilies of the field with, with pure beauty and provides food and shelter for the sparrow, that this one, This one true living God will truly care for and provide for His beloved children. The very children whom He loves with a perfect love and whom He has redeemed from death and condemnation by the shed blood of His own gracious beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Beloved children of God, know this. You truly are most precious in God's sight. And though you suffer a little while in this life, eternal glory and blessings will be your sure and certain inheritance in Christ Jesus. And so James encourages those suffering under the trial poverty, he encourages us who may be dealing with economic hardships. He encourages us by reminding us of the glorious position that we hold in God's sight because of what Jesus has done for us. Let's not lose sight of that great truth. So the trials of the poor and are certainly Easy to see and understand. Right? Again, we, we can look around and we see poverty and the struggles of economic hardship all around us. But they're to glory, those who trust in Christ, 
to glory in their exaltation, their position of being a child of God. But as James continues, we see that the wealthy face their own set of trials. In verse 10 he says, And the rich in his, in, and the rich in his humiliation. <clears throat> now this is a difficult verse, and, and commentators are kind of split about 50-50 on how to understand it. Some understand it that, that James here is speaking in verse 10 is speaking about unbelievers who are rich. That they should glory in their humiliation. And now this is certainly possible. It's a possible interpretation, especially when we see that again later in the letter, James is going to speak of the rich in even less flattering language than he does here. Well, if he's talking about unbelieving uh, unbelievers who are rich... Well, in this case, then, James here is being extremely ironic. As if to say, look, the only thing you have to glory in is eternal condemnation and humiliation. That's it. So you better enjoy what you have in this life while it lasts, because that's it. There'll be nothing left for you in eternity except for condemnation and humiliation. So, so glory in that. So that's one way to look at these, this verse. But others contend that James is here speaking of, of fellow believers. Fellow believers who happen to be rich or wealthy. And the, the key here to understanding it this way is the parallelism, uh, the, 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 how it's similar between verse 9 and verse 10. Right? In verse 9, we have lowly and exaltation are being contrasted parallels to rich and humiliation in, in verse 10. Now, the word glory that we see in verse 9, at least in some translations, doesn't appear in, in verse 10 because it's supplied. Right? It's, uh, it's not in the Greek, but it's just understood that the thought is being carried. So, the word glory in verse 9 is supplied... Uh, by the continued thought in verse 10, where the word, it doesn't appear. And so the argument continues that, that the same would be true for the word brother. right? The lowly brother, and now we're talking about the rich brother. It carries over in the same way as the word glory does. And we saw this before, uh, back in verse 6, the one who doubts, right? That the one who doubts was, uh, was likely a believer who was tempted to doubt that God was going to answer prayer. It wasn't an unbeliever, because unbelievers aren't going to be praying in the first place. So this talking, he's talking about believers. And again, many people were poor, but some weren't. Money and wealth... According to the scriptures, money and wealth, in and of themselves, are not condemned. Right? There's nothing sinful about money and wealth. And some of the uh, most faithful uh, people that we find in the scriptures had a lot of money and, and had a lot of wealth in terms of, of their times. But of course we're reminded that it's the, the love of money. It's the love of money that's the, the root of evil. And it's, and it's putting one's trust in wealth that's condemned as vain and worthless. The Apostle Paul gives Timothy particular instructions to, to pass on to the rich who, who were in Ephesus. 
1 Timothy 6, Paul says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. So he's talking about believers here. Again, because the unbelievers aren't going to care about any of this kind of stuff. But the believers who are rich, well, they need to understand that God has blessed them and that they need to use that to bless others. That's what he's encouraging here to do in in, uh, 1 Timothy 6. And so again, we see the the presence of poor and rich even in the same congregation wasn't, wasn't uncommon. But the existence of this economic inequality, right, if, it, if it's not kept in check, well, it could easily be used by Satan as a means to disrupt the peace and unity of the church. Right? When you have a congregation with, with people that are, are, some are poor, some are, uh, are rich, and some are kind of in between, right? there can be various tensions that arise. Right? The rich may be tempted to, to be pushy, even oppressive. Since many would think that they kind of seemingly hold the purse strings. And the poor might either uh, fester with envy, right, because they don't have what others have, or they may be so, they may so highly uh, honor the rich in order to try to curry their favor that they do so to the exclusion of others. And again, James is going to deal with both of these kinds of abuses later in his letter of how both the rich are being oppressive and how the poor are, the, those who are not so rich, are, are showing favoritism and, and disrupting the unity of the body. But understanding verse 10 as speaking of a rich brother, again, fits in with the overall theme that we have here in James 1 of dealing with believers enduring various kinds of trials. Now, though we may not think of riches and wealth being a trial or a testing of our faith, well, it can certainly be that. And before you say to yourself, ah, riches and wealth, now now there's a trial I could live with. (laughs) But we need to consider, we need to consider what James has to say and, and the inherent danger that lurks for those who have great wealth. The trial that the rich believer might endure isn't so much suffering the lack of worldly goods, but it's constantly being tempted to put their hope and trust in those worldly goods that they have. And this way, the trials of the rich may actually be more dangerous than those of the poor. Right? The poor, uh, they, they have no worldly possessions to put their hope in. And unless they're overcome with envy and greed, as, as sadly some poor are certainly uh, apt to do, and we see, unfortunately, politicians tapping into that envy and greed all the time for their own purposes, but the poor tend to be more content to rest their hope in, in future glory that's firm and secure. But the rich person will be constantly tempted regarding his wealth. How to increase it, how to preserve it, how to protect it, 
always suspicious of, of those who might be trying to, to take it and, and to uh, take advantage of it. These can be the temptations that fall upon the wealthy. James illustrates this danger with, with word pictures echoing the prophet Isaiah. In James uh, verses 10 and 11, he says, Because it's a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Now in Isaiah 40, which this uh, James here is echoing, we see this imagery to, is being used to speak of the transient nature of just life itself, right? Just uh, whether the person's rich or, or poor, it doesn't matter. This is speaking of how all of our lives are. All our lives are but a vapor. And here today and, and gone tomorrow. But eternity is forever. And so the, the point here is that we better be prepared for eternity. But here, James is applying this particularly, not just to everyone in general, but particularly to the rich. Because not only will the rich pass away in time, just like everyone else, but so too will his wealth and riches. In fact, his wealth and riches will pass away even sooner. And again, the rich are often tempted to boast and the beauty of their wealth and the position and honor they, they can buy with it. And, but if that's all they boast in, then it's nothing. Psalmist sings in Psalm 49, For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. And so if you're wealthy, both you and your possessions will perish quickly. And so James urges the rich brother, don't glory in your riches and in your wealth, but rather glory in your humiliation. That is, glory in your low position before God, the Creator and Judge. Now what is that low position? Well, it's that you're a, a sinner deserving of the just wrath and curse of God. And yet God who is rich in grace and mercy, has redeemed you, the undeserving sinner. Even though you're rich, He has redeemed you. See, your true value and worth isn't found within yourselves and, and what you can do and what you, what you have or how much money you earn. No, your true value and wealth comes only in Jesus Christ who saved the poor, wretched sinner just like you and me. And furthermore, glorying in the humble and low position of an undeserving sinner saved by grace is going to be foolishness to the world. Rich believers will be mocked for their identification with Christ. And no one gives a thought if the poor trust in Christ. <clears throat> but if the rich and the wealthy do... They're open to mockery. Look at your God and your Savior. He's a man who, who died on a cross. He, he died the death of a common criminal. That's your salvation? It's pathetic. Certainly you can buy something better than that. 
And so they'd be mocked. And so the call of James here for the rich is to glory in the humiliation, ultimately, in the humiliation of the cross of Jesus Christ. And as they remember the cross and its humiliation and what Christ endured, and as they fix their eyes upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of their faith, remembering their eternal hope and trust in Him, that it truly is everlasting and that it will never fade away, they will then be strengthened against these temptations to trust in their wealth and their possessions. They'll see that these things don't matter. They're not going to to help me. They're not going to deliver me. Only Jesus can deliver me from sin and death. And He was humiliated. And He died so that I might be given life and that I might be exalted. And so James encourages and challenges the rich believers in their trials of wealth by again pointing them to the humiliation of the cross in all its glory. And so we see here that that the poor as well as the rich can, can face trials. And for the one who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, whether you're poor or rich, you have reason to boast in glory, but as the prophet James tell, uh, Jeremiah tells us, that their boast is only in the Lord. Jeremiah 9, he says let this, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. For when we know and trust in the Lord, we're confident that though we endure severe trials in this life, We know that He'll sustain us with His all-sufficient grace and that He will supply us with all that we truly need. And we're confident that in Christ alone we have unspeakable riches in store for us, for those who are children of God. And we're confident that our hope and our salvation has been made secure in the humiliation of the cross and the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ on the third day. And so, friends, if you boast, let us boast in this. Let us boast in the high position in Christ Jesus that we have. And let us boast in His humiliation, His suffering and death on the cross, which has given us life. As James goes on, verse 12, the one who endures and perseveres through these trials will surely be blessed. He says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Again, we need godly wisdom to help us understand this blessing as we're reminded of the fact that our trials and the testing of our faith are used by God to approve us. That is, to the, the, the quality of our faith is, is being tested, it's being stretched, and it's being improved so that we become, even through trials of po- poverty and trials of wealth, so that we become closer and closer to that perfect image of our Savior Jesus Christ. That's the perfect goal that we press toward. 
And that God is forming and fashioning us toward in the midst of these trials. And truly the one who reaches that goal is abundantly blessed. And once we get there, once we reach that goal, once we endure to the end, there is a gracious reward for our perseverance through the various trials in this life. And that reward, James says here, is the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. This is the crown Christ has promised us. Even eternal life in His glorious presence forever and ever. Peter says in 1 Peter 5 that it's a crown of glory that does not fade away. And that will receive this when Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, appears. And the Apostle Paul declares in in 1 Corinthians 9 that it's an imperishable crown. Which we strive for as we run the race of faith in this life. Beloved of God, it's that grand glorious crown of eternal life. That will be given to us by Christ our Savior. The very crown which He secured for us. When He wore on His own head a crown of thorns. And He suffered and died on the cross for our sins. That's the crown that we deserved. What Christ was wearing on the cross. That's the crown that we deserve because of our sin. Yet Christ wore that painful crown in our place. So that we might receive from Him the forgiveness of sins. So that we might receive the uh, peace and reconciliation with God our Father. And that we might receive the sure and certain crown of eternal life. Which again can never be taken away from us. Beloved of God. Trials come to each of us in various ways. They come to us if we're poor. They come to us if we're rich. But however they come to us. If your hope and your faith is in Jesus Christ. You have great reason to rejoice. To glory. And to boast. For no matter what your circumstances or the the nature of your trials. You can boast in the fact that you are in Christ Jesus. A most beloved child of God the Father. The creator of heaven and earth. And you can boast in the assurance that through the humiliation and death of Christ, that salvation has been secured for undeserving sinners such as yourselves. And you can boast in glory in the midst of these trials because you know that through them, God will use them to make you more and more like His beloved Son, Jesus Christ. And when you reach the end, you'll receive that crown of glory that He's promised. Beloved, true everlasting blessing is found in Jesus Christ alone. Believe in Him. And surely you will not be disappointed, not now in this life, and not not at the end, at the time of the judgment, nor forever or ever and ever. To the glory of God alone. Let's pray.
Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we rejoice and give thanks to you for the truth of your word and the challenge set before us. And we're reminded of the economic trials that we all endure in, in various ways. And, and we're in the midst of difficult economic times even now, whether we have a lot of money or not much money at all in the bank. And yet we pray that our glory and boast would not be in our wealth and what we have or what we don't have. But our glory and our boast would be in you alone. In Christ alone who saved us and delivered us. And he has secured for us that crown of life. And Father, we pray that you would sustain us by your grace. As we press on through these various trials of this life. Always staying focused upon pursuing that glorious crown. Knowing that we will one day reach it. And that you will bless us with it. As you you bless us with your eternal presence. Where there is fullness of joy. Father we just praise you and thank you. We know that, that life is short. And that there are numbered days for each of us. And so we pray that you would truly impress these great truths upon each of our hearts. Drawing us all closer to yourself. That we might... Glory in Christ, and glory in you, and glory in your spirit. Because you are God, the one true living God, who saved us and who loves us. And so we ask, Lord, for your blessing in these things. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.